schoolish of greetings to every single one of you. Thank you so much for stopping by, making Paranormal Proud's podcast part of your day. Those tunes, as always, is courtesy of the generous and amazing Bobby Mackey, and I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. The woman. She sits there in a small, confined space. She hears screaming in the background. She shivers and shakes, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, mumbling to herself, I can't stop it, I can't, I can't, trying to tune out the horrific sounds that are coming from her fellow patients. A tear, it forms, rapidly drops down her cheek. She vigorously wipes it away. No, she thinks. I will not let this place get to me. It won't be too long. It won't be too long. While some did in fact leave, many did not. Central Louisiana State Hospital, established to serve mentally ill patients from 42 different parishes, Spanning over 400 acres, it's a home for the mentally disturbed. It opened its doors in the early 1900s, and several of the original buildings are actually still standing and used to this very day. At one point, Central Louisiana State Hospital was the largest of its kind in America. In 1902, state legislation authorizes an establishment of what was first known as the Insane Asylum for Colored People of the State of Louisiana. Located in Pineville in Rapids Parish, $100,000 is given to them for the construction. $100,000 in 1902 is $3,105,279, give or take a few, today. In 1904, Legislation was amended to provide treatment for Caucasians for mental illness as well. Now, even though it was now to be a biracial establishment, they were still segregated. They finally opened their doors two years later in 1906. With the changes, so came a new name. Louisiana Hospital for the Insane of Louisiana. I don't know. I don't think they have the word Louisiana in there enough, you know? I mean, only twice? Come on, what are we doing? It would keep Louisiana Hospital for the Insane of Louisiana until 1924, when it changes the name we know it to be today, that being Central Louisiana State Hospital. Believe it or not, by 1940, Central State is averaging over 2,000 patients a day. In 1959, they were at their very highest of peaks ever, with a whopping 3,128 patients. And ironically, it is after this high peak of a year that then it starts declining annually. And today, while it is still an up-and-running establishment, the patient numbers are not in the thousands. It's more like around 138, give or take a few people. By 1965, Central started desegregating patient units. In 1985, the last patients are interred. And four years later, in 1989, the average daily population drops below 400. It's the first time since 1907. 
1999, they closed programs due to budget cuts. And in recent years, like 2005, things are looking up again. And they're able to receive 91 new psychiatric patients. And they end up employing 92 staff members from New Orleans. And this was really shortly after Hurricane Katrina. Now, by 2011, Central Louisiana State Hospital had 120 patients. Like many other facilities and institutes like this, State Hospital, it was a self-contained establishment. Possibly still is. While times have certainly changed now, thankfully, back then in the State Hospital's earlier years, patients were treated more like prisoners and were often placed in... I don't know, what could appropriately be described as giant dog pens, cages, kennels, cribs, whatever you want to call it. Isolated from one another, of course. Meanwhile, they had other patients tied to these large, bulky, uncomfortable chairs, and they would remain there for several hours, unable to move, eat, drink, urinate, defecate, whatever. No communication whatsoever. It was more like a form of torture than treatment. And I don't know, you see that a lot with the older state hospitals and the asylums and all those different things. It's like back then you could literally, a man could literally send his wife away for not having enough meat on his plate. From the years 1941 and all the way up to 1976, believe it or not, electroshock therapy was widely used here. An antique electroconvulsive machine can still be seen here to this very day. Of course, it is retired now, but staring at it, I think of all the pain it caused these poor patients all those decades ago. Speaking of electroshock therapy, one day a man, who I believe is also a paranormal investigator, he was at the state hospital giving a speech to a class of high school students when one girl shares a very heartbreaking story. Long ago, her grandma was a patient here at Central State, and sadly, she was no stranger to the electroshock treatment. She was exposed to it pretty regularly, actually. One day it proved to be way too much for her frail, weak body, and she died while on the table during this treatment slash torture. I can't even imagine to have a loved one of yours just die in such a excruciating way. Like, that's really, that's horrible. Now, on the grounds of the hospital is a Civil War era fort, that being Fort Randolph. The hospital cemetery, which has around 3,000 graves and what's known as Rose Cottage, a hospital laboratory which also houses Fatality. the morgue. The Rose Cottage was built in 1917. The architect who designed this particular building was a man named Joseph Carlin. He was actually a former patient and called this state hospital home from 1909 up until 1912. Carlin also helped build the hospital's dairy farm in 1923, and that is a really cool-looking building, my friends. One paranormal team investigated the Rose Cottage area, I believe, and while downstairs in the room where the electroshock therapy took place, they suddenly hear a deafening crash. Like a piece of pottery falling from a shelf. 
When the team goes to the area the sound came from to see what could have caused such a loud, obnoxious, obvious sound, they came upon a piece of flooring tile that had shattered into a ton of pieces. Nothing else was nearby. What could have caused this? Now, if this were me, I would be searching everywhere to see if something bounced away, ricocheted, or what have you, rolled under a desk or something. I'd be looking for windows, see if they're open, perhaps a gust of wind, or was a fellow member nearby and saw something or was responsible for doing something accidentally. Debunking, it's just part of the job. It's part of the investigating, and I'm sure these people probably did the same thing. Now, before I get into all the haunts and strange happenings that comes hand in hand with the paranormal and supernatural, I better share that recently the state hospital, which remember is still up and running, has heightened their security and the entrance is manned 24-7. Access denied. I'm sure this team I just talked about, they were there, they gained access, but as of right now, the noose has been tightened, so to speak. Now, before I get into the haunts and the personal experiences, as a fan of all things that are burial grounds, I wanted to spend a moment or two just kind of talking about the state hospital's cemetery. Hospital records show that 3,000 people are indeed buried here. I believe the last burial took place in June of 1985. And it's sad that so many are buried here, like their families didn't want to claim the body or maybe did not have enough funds to bury them. I know many mental asylums and lunatic asylums and state hospitals back then in the day, some people would just drop off their family members. And at times these people were so ill or suffered from things like dementia, where they didn't even know their own names and the family dumping them off wouldn't supply the hospital with a name either. So not only are some of these people buried here, but they're truly forgotten where there's not even an identity to match with the headstone. So it's just very sad stuff for sure. Before the hospital was able to get a chaplain, the funeral process was actually handled by the hospital staff. Up until 1933, the patient's body would be transferred from the hospital, or morgue, to the cemetery via a wheelbarrow. After several years of service, the wheelbarrow retired, and a more appropriate form of funerary transportation was used, that being a hand-drawn hearse. Now, this would be used up until 1950. The pallbearers, they would push it all the way to the gravesite, the female patients would usually have a pink or blue shroud draped over their coffin. Now, these shrouds were handmade in the sewing room on the hospital grounds, usually by the hospital staff or I believe even the patients themselves. And I actually saw something like that when I was watching this documentary. And I believe it had to actually do with the Louisiana State Pen. And they were talk they were showing some of like the death row inmates and they would build the coffins, but they would actually also make these blankets or something to put over the coffins. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of, kind of neat. If they're stuck in there, they might as well be doing something, right? But anyways, I think in this case for Central Louisiana State Hospital, it's believed but not proven that the coffins were made on site as well in the carpenter shop. 
Now that we know some of the history behind Central Louisiana State Hospital, let's dive right into those haunts and some personal accounts. Now, Unit 2 of Central State is pretty active. The elevator operates all by itself at nighttime. Doors will suddenly open and then slam shut. And when people go to check on these noises, all the doors are found to be not only closed, but locked and secured. Meanwhile, in Unit 7, many, many strange things happen here. From time to time, strange glowing lights are seen passing under doors. The clocks will change times all on their own. Things will move by themselves. Items will fall off shelves, or more like thrown off the shelves. Electrical appliances will turn on and off. Unexplained voices are often heard. Maybe from times past. Chairs and other large objects flip over by themselves. Very poltergeist-like, and some have claimed to have seen a mist here as well. On some sites online, including haunted places, I found some people's personal experiences. Some worked here, and some were even patients. So it's kind of neat. You're not just visiting or investigating or looking for it. In some cases, people were sent there, whether they were ill or something else was happening with them. And they experienced these things, not because they were looking for it, but it kind of found them. And also with the employees. So one woman, she shared that she stayed in the Gateway Adolescent Treatment Center. And she woke up one night to see, quote, A black man with a navy blue jacket and khaki pants standing by the door. The mysterious man, he did not talk or move. He just kind of stood there staring at her. When the girl told the nurse about the man, the nurse shared with her that the male patients who died here were dressed and buried in, yeah, you guessed it, my friends, a navy blue jacket and khaki pants. One woman who used to be an RN, heroes, by the way, you registered nurses and all of you guys and gals, good job, keep it up, so proud of you. One woman who used to be an RN at the state hospital shares that this was no regular job, no siree. During her time working here, she had a bunch of weird things happening to her. Quote, The doors and walls made of wood have many demonic and strange impressions. Unquote. She admits that at first she thought the things she was seeing and experiencing were kind of all in her head. But, you know... If you work at a state hospital, you're not going to start talking about things. You know, you don't want to, you don't mind working at one. You don't want to be thrown into one, right? But all of a sudden, her fellow employees, they too notice it as well. And they share their experiences. And I bet it gave her a good peace of mind. Like, okay, <laughs> I'm not losing it. It's not something that's being, you know, fabricated in my head. It's not just me, Right. The RN describes the adolescence unit as being on a high hill. I mean, it's no easy walk in the park to get to this unit. The windows had a, quote, metal-like grating on the outside, unquote. She said that there were several times where the patients would hear loud bangs as if someone was pounding on the windows. When the staff would search the whole perimeter, inside and out, no one was ever there. This would also happen in her office. 
Now, in the hallways, many have seen a lady in white wandering about. Another account shares that a few of the houses that the doctors and staff actually resided in have some residual and intelligent activity. People have seen balls of light, shadow figures, and even full-bodied apparitions. Some employees refused to work in certain locations due to things they have seen, heard, experienced, encountered. You get the picture. You know how I just mentioned people seeing a lady in white? Well, here's an experience that I found. It's about a girl who, at the time, she was 14 years old and pregnant. She was staying in the adolescent unit that was mentioned earlier, and she was there for a good year. This is incredible. She says that every single night she was there, she was visited by a lady in white. She wore, quote, a long white gown from a different time than we were in, unquote. The apparition would sit on the pregnant girl's bed and just sit there, rocking back and forth, back and forth. To the girl, it looked like the woman was holding a baby. The girl would tell her doctor about the nightly encounters with the woman, and he never believed her. He would just end up upping her medications. She finally got the hint and stopped telling him. It's kind of sad if you think about it. This woman, actually just this girl, 14 years old, is seeing these things. And yeah, granted, she's in a state hospital for where there's many people who are there mentally ill, not stable. But she's seeing these things and he's upping her medication. Like, no, <laughs> I don't need any more meds. I'm just trying to tell you this shit is like going this shit's happening, you know? And so it makes you wonder, kind of makes me wonder at least how many other people were seeing things there and maybe were just like, you know, it was being pushed under the rug. So I don't know. To me, that's very interesting for sure. So she finally got the hint, stopped telling the doc. She eventually, she has her baby. And the baby and her are separated. The wee one was sent to live with the girl's family. Soon the girl was back at the state hospital, and she says that the lady in white continued to visit her every single night, except this time, instead of just sitting there rocking back and forth, she would cry. <laughs> oh, no. The girl, now a grown woman, feels that perhaps this woman in life lost her child, too. I mean, you just never know. It's very sad, though. And I think it's amazing, though, that this apparition, this full-bodied apparition of a woman who is probably a former patient, was visiting this girl. I mean, just, I mean, to me, that's amazing. Makes you wonder, is she still there? She's still visiting other people? Another former employee shares that when she started hearing about sightings and encounters with the lady in white, that it definitely got her attention because, and this is a great point, when the hospital first opened and when a female patient would die, she would be dressed in a white lace type dress. And I find that super interesting. People seeing these apparitions of men and women describing their clothing, men in navy blue jackets and khaki pants and the lady in the white gowns, not knowing this was the funeral attire that they would be dressed in and buried in. 
Just another neat piece of the paranormal puzzle that is Central Louisiana State Hospital. I found one heartbreaking story where someone lost their brother. If that wasn't bad enough, the brother had sole custody of this person, and I'll call her Jane Doe. So Jane Doe, she lives in a home where her mother had a boyfriend who, let's just say, was not very friendly to people, especially children. And I think I would not be exaggerating if I called this boyfriend of mom's a pedophile. He proved to be a sexually abusive person towards the children, and they were removed, not once, but twice. Big Brother was the person to help make life happy again, joyous, enjoyable, and most important, safe for a child. Well, he dies, and this poor kid finds herself at Central State. She just lost her brother, man. She, I mean, you know? She doesn't want to be in a state hospital. She makes the comment about how she would rather die and be reunited with her brother than be sent back home to live with her mom and sexually abusive boyfriend. Anyone who dealt with what this person went through would say the same thing. Shit, I would say the same thing. Well, obviously, when you're in a place like a state hospital, they don't take this as just banter. No. They take this as a threat. You said you'd rather die? The rest of the words in that sentence don't matter. You threatened to kill yourself. They take action. And that comment landed this poor, poor child in a 72-hour suicide watch. She shares that while holed up with the other suicidal folks, they had what was called music therapy. you this was in the mid 90s so this was definitely when discman was a huge part of many many people's lives man i swear it was because of my discman that made the school rides a little more tolerable on that boring bus i usually had my sound guard of the album super unknown and just jam out at chris cornell's voice i can see why music can be seen as therapy at times so Anyways, this was Discman days, not iTunes or iPod days or whatever else you use. It was day two of Suicide Watch and this girl was sitting there listening to the soundtrack of The Crow. She says she will never forget this. She was listening to the song It Can't Rain All the Time. And the artist sings the line, Oh, Can You Hear Me? Suddenly, the headphones are violently yanked off this young girl's head. This was with such force that the cord ripped out of the disc band itself and was thrown to the ground. Fully alert and probably very pissed off, the scout jumps out of the chair, ready to confront whoever the hell just did such a thing. Someone who wasn't taught manners, only to find nobody there. Not a single person. In fact, when she looked around, everyone else was on the opposite side of the room. And it was a decent sized room. In her words, she said it was the size of your average McDonald's. So, pretty big. As if this incident was not enough, something else happened with this particular patient. 
Hours later into the evening, she is in her dormitory with several other girls. There's something that feels like I was breathing in pepper spray, causing me to cough and choke until I vomited. One of the staff escorts her to the medical unit. I mean, as soon as this girl leaves the room, she feels better. Of course, the guy escorting her thought she was faking it. The doctor says that it's just mold, allergies, and sends her off to stay in another room. A nursing assistant, who's a little more on top of things, shares that she is not the only person to have such an incident happen in that same room. Even that very same night, someone else had issues right before her. The nursing assistant also tells her that back in the day, people who suffered from tuberculosis were often housed in that very room. Makes me kind of wonder with all that's going on there, if the current patients ever experience anything in this particular area. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Yes! Listen to the others, you guys. They are equally amazing. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry, my friends. Just head on over to any of those phantasmic podcast platforms such as Deezer, CastBox, Spotify, Player FM, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Republic. Basically, wherever you may roam to listen to your other spine-tingling podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Paralysis Podcast lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to Charlottesville, Virginia, Murray, Kentucky, Forsyth, Georgia, Buena Park, California, and Ikeriri, Iceland. Thank you so much for listening. Do you have an idea for a spooky episode? Want to be on an episode and share your encounters with the paranormal and supernatural? I'm all ears. Throw an email my way at paranormal.prowlers.podcast at gmail.com or message me at Paranormal Prowlers on Facebook or Paraprowlers on Twitter. See you next week.